and um, let's just introduce you, um, if we may. And uh, well, there's lots of little bits wow, and pieces. We're we'll you're even recording your history here. Um, tell us. Uh, yeah, that's right. We'll um, censor <laughs> you later. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Where are you from at the moment? What sort of background? Who am I at the moment? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm self-identifying as. Well, gender fluidity. <laughs> What's we're, we're progressive. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> my, <laughs> uh, my name's Dave. Uh, I am from uh, uh, living in North Finchley, uh, where I'm uh, minister ministering at uh, Christ Church North Finchley. I'm vicar there. I've been there for seven years, uh, and it's good. Um, and yeah, that's where I am. I am married to Sarah, and we have three kids. Okay, so so what's good about North Finchley? Uh, what's good about North Finchley? Um, uh, I, yeah, I'll tell you in a minute. But one of my <laughs> one of the things I like when the latest incarnation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when it was at the the cinema, uh, I watched it at a cinema in Finchley, uh, and there's a great line in it where they go, "We're not heroes. We're from Finchley." Uh, <laughs> 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 where apart, and we all went, "Yeah." Well, you go, there's Finchley. Uh, um, yeah, no, praise the Lord for what he's doing in Finchley. Uh, it is a really, really mixed bunch of people. The, the thing that uh, Johnny was saying before about the, the kind of, you know, the diversity within the church, and particularly the African church being massive in London. In North Finchley Christchurch, it, it is a mixture of all sorts of different people united in the gospel i mean not flawlessly obviously but there on a sunday you can't help but notice that and praise the lord for that and delighted to see his because that is a display of his wisdom and his glory isn't it when you see different people united in christ uh, and we are privileged that we're one of those places where the world is on our doorstep we're straight opposite a mosque uh, we have just a, a, you know over the road and we we have all sorts of opportunities with all sorts of people uh, praise the Lord for what he's doing amongst Iranians at the moment uh, and various others. Uh, mm. So, yeah, it's a great to be given a window on that, really, in, in Christchurch and seek to be faithful, teaching the word and stuff. Well, tell us a little bit, what, what have been the sort of, um, from getting um, from where you began to here, uh, what have been the big milestones or turning points for you where you've seen God at work shaping your life and calling? In my whole life? Um, okay, uh, yeah, well, I mean, obviously the, the diversity thing's different for me now because I grew up on the Wirral, uh, and on the Wirral there's, I think there's about half a dozen non-white Anglo-Saxons and all of them own chip shops, so <laughs> there you go. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really thankful for, yeah, well, different turning points in my life. One thing that was really significant for me uh, was uh, a guy uh, called um, Frank Houston, uh, who was uh, a youth leader, uh, in my teens, uh, and Frank was a guy who came to Christ late on. Um, he was, uh, and and his thing for us was he was he used to sort of kind of well, not beat it into us, but encourage it into us and say, "Lads, don't waste your life." My only regret is that I didn't know Jesus until I was fifty, uh, and all those years went by. Uh, and my, that's my only regret and my greatest joy is that I know him now so make sure you don't waste it uh, because you've got such a privilege and I remember him telling that to us and thinking that was a, a striking thing Frank went on uh, he, he was one of those people who his life was um, 
making Jesus known then. Uh, and he, he quoted that saying of um, Spurgeon, I think it was, who said, uh, if, in, if you don't know who it is, always say Spurgeon said, because he probably did. Um, uh, but, um, it was Spurgeon who said, I think, uh, um, you're immortal until you have completed the last thing that God has for you to do. Uh, and Frank used to say that quite a lot. Uh, and he, there was one night when he was uh, teaching, he, he was helping out at a, at a kids club for threes to sixes at church and was helping a little lad who was asking him questions about Jesus, telling him about the Lord. Uh, and the next morning he just dropped dead. Uh, and you just go, well, praise the Lord that he took his servant at that time when he'd just done the last thing he had for him to do. He just, he just kind of knew that. So he, he had a deep impact on me. Various others have as well. But that's one that comes to mind right now. That's encouraging. Um, and what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you? No notice of these questions, of course. Just to... Uh, Put you on the spot. I have no idea. <laughs> Other than being asked that question. Yeah, <laughs> you've got me there. Yeah, okay. you have to come uh, back to me on that one. You yeah. think about that one. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll get you to tell the joke. But might, no, that's probably fine. come halfway through the talk when you're all <laughs> looking asleep. So in which case, it might be helpful. Well, take a seat. We'll um, we'll um, hear a little bit more in a moment. But we're going to read from God's Word, and then I'll pray for you, and we'll start. We're going to look at Colossians, chapter one, New Testament. Look it up in the index if you like. Um, <laughs> well, from the Bible I've nicked from church, it's page 1182. But, um, so Colossians chapter 1, we read the whole chapter. So. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once, You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And now I rejoice in what was suffered for you and fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints, to them. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, what a glorious vision of your Son, our Saviour, whose word gives us life and unites us by your Spirit into the truth. And so we pray for our servant Dave as he opens your word to us. Fill him with your Spirit that his words may be used by you to transform our lives to change our minds and our hearts, to shape our behaviour and our passions. And use us in your service as we encourage one another in the work you have given. So bless him now as we receive all that he shares. In Jesus' name. Amen. There are handouts, so uh, please take your pass round. There we go. Right. Great. Um, Just to kind of give a a little bit of a heads up on how these three main sessions are going to hold together uh, loosely. Um, They they came about uh, because in a long series of conference meetings, we were trying to find a a sort of top-level speaker... Uh, for this conference Uh, and then there was the council meeting when I wasn't there and I don't think George, Jeffrey you weren't there, Jason you weren't there either? I missed that one. Yeah okay Uh, and so here we are 
and, and um, yes, so, so my, I'm sort of setting things up, as it were, today. We're going to do a bit of a sort of theology of mission today, uh, looking at the Missio Dei, God's mission, and how that applies. Uh, the, the way that kind of, the way that the pieces of that settle uh, will come in various ways. One is, there is a seminar this evening, which is a chance to kind of talk about this and think about it a bit more. Uh, and then tomorrow, uh, with Jason, we'll be looking at how that connects with our thinking about the society in, in which we are in. Uh, he'll be looking very much at that, the question of all, the world in which we're in right now. Uh, and then, uh, with Jeffrey, we'll be looking at what implications that, are, uh, that has for the way we do church, for our ecclesiology and the way we, we are uh, in, in that way. So, the applications will come, um, uh, but for now, let's, let's get on with this. Um, Okay, so God's mission as worship extension is what I've called this, Missio Dei in five rings. Um, If you know the way broadly, you will see it in everything, says Miyamoto Mushashi uh, in the book of the five rings, uh, which is a samurai manual. Um, uh, So, yeah, (laughs) ten of those didn't have, so we didn't invite them. Um, I'm, I'm here to talk for you, to you for uh, an hour or less, hopefully, about Missio Dei, uh, God's mission. Now, that, you might be a bit hesitant about that for a, a couple of reasons. One is, uh, if you know anything about uh, missiology uh, during the last century, uh, you might have heard the phrase Missio Dei. Uh, it was adopted, it was adapted as a sort of ecumenical sleight of hand. Uh, during the optimistic early days of the World Council of Churches, um, Villingen 1952, if any of you weren't there. Um, no. Jim's shaking his head at this point. And, you know, the, the, Missio Dei back then was, it was seen as something that trumped the smaller categories of ecclesiology and soteriology, which we couldn't agree on, uh, and united us, because after all, who could be against either mission or God? Uh, So Missio Dei uh, was introduced as kind of intentionally broad and fuzzy-edged at that time, in in lots of the discussion about it. And there's nothing quite like untranslated Latin, is there, to create that sense of kind of shared, rarefied befuddlement, um, sometimes known as koinonia. Uh, which is a, so it's, it's, yeah, I was going to say, it's not Latin that has the monopoly on befuddlement, it's okay. Um, so you, you might also be a bit hesitant because you, you'll know the sort of traction that that idea has gained within the Church of England, where um, the, the one thing that all differing theological strands can agree on is that we all want mission to happen, uh, and especially God's mission, the Missio Dei, whatever that means. Uh, and so wildly different practices uh, coalesce uh, under that banner, different theologies under that banner. You know, things like from you know, setting up post offices in our churches to entrusting mission training for clergy to the CEO of the post office. Or at least that's how it works in my diocese. I've had, we've had, we have both of those. Uh, so so we, we might well ask if this concept of God's mission is useful to us at all, or if it's just too vague to be helpful. Uh, and... My hope this afternoon is to assert that it can be very helpful for us, 
uh, as reformed-minded people, to think about God's mission as the foundation of our missiology. Because it makes mission about God uh, for his glory, in his power, in line with his will, directed by his revelation, rooted in his word, and therefore in prayer. Uh, So it it can be really good. Uh, But if we're going to make it useful for us, we need to make some important distinctions. Uh, So, class, if you'll take out your wands and shout distinguo, uh, then we'll begin. Um, So... Uh, This is where we get to the upside-down stacking rings of mission, which you have there on your sheets, the the stacking rings. Uh, So we're thinking in terms of child stacking rings, but upside-down. So the big one's at the top, uh, and they get smaller and smaller as we go down. So we're going to look at God's mission, as it were, in five layers, gradually narrowing the focus so that we may apply it. Starting with ring one, then. God's overall purpose to his glory God's glory is is, it's the overarching ring it's the ring that holds the others together that governs the others Uh, you might say soli deo gloria uh, is the ashnazg durbataluk of the missio dei Uh, if you were daft uh, and and if you spoke black speech of mordor Uh, but there you go Um, But, yeah, that to one side. Um, This is the overarching goal, the thing that governs the other. The the telos of all things is founded in the intra-Trinitarian, mutually glorifying love of Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, that, That connection between God's love and his glory within the Trinity, whereby the different persons love and glorify one another. That's foundational to understanding mission. Because uh, that, that other-centred love between the members of the Trinity is the basis for their extra-Trinitarian actions. Uh, the love within the Trinity is the basis for what happens outside, what God does beyond the Trinity. So for God to be chiefly concerned with the glory of God from that perspective, well, that keeps us from you know, attributing to God the sort of narcissistic self-love which sinful humans can fall into because for a Trinitarian God, love between the persons is always other person-centred love. Um, Scripture has lots of references to the creating and redeeming work of God as being to his glory. A few of them are, you know, I could list a load, but, you know, think about Revelation 4.11... He created all things to... You know the one. Ezekiel 36, it's not, not for your sake, for my name's sake. Or, or John 17, uh, Jesus praying to his Father, glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Uh, and, and so on and so on. It's Ephesians 1.14, all that sort of thing. Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory. Um, now, that, that Trinitarian foundation uh, for mission, it means that mission has an orientation and it has an outcome. It means that mission is orientated towards worship. That's what it's about. Uh, God's other-centred love is not purposeless. It, it draws others 
back into the love of the Trinity in worship. Uh, John Lehman, a, a missiologist, he, he writes in a very helpful book, uh, which I have here, uh, Four Views on the Church's Mission. This is a great book. It's right, really new, uh, really helpful. What he says in there is great. Uh, he says this. He says, The Father doesn't give us his love indiscriminately or because he's attracted to something lovely in us. Everything we have is from him. Uh, he cites 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 at that point. He, he says he, the Father loves us for the sake of his Son. He wants the world to delight in his Son as he does. God's holy love is like a boomerang, swirling outwards and drawing us into the arc of its path. What then does this have to do with mission? First, it provides a purpose for mission, worship. Mission exists not just because God loves Mission exists to call people to worship. Mission orientated towards worship. John Piper puts it memorably. Uh, John Piper, at the start of his book, um, which is uh, this one, Let the Nations Be Glad, another good book. Um, uh, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, he says. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. He goes on and says more. Um, so the connection between the goal of God's glory and worship, well, it's evident in creation, especially in the identification of Eden as the original sanctuary, uh, the proto-temple, uh, and G.K. Beale, Greg Beale, in his wonderful book, uh, the, the Temple and the Church's Mission, which is just brilliant biblical theology, uh, he makes this point. He observes that in Scripture, temples expand. That's what they do. Uh, uh, and Eden, the first sanctuary, was intended by God to expand, to fill the earth through the agency of these human priest-stroke worshippers who, who fill the earth, cultivating it, keeping it, subduing it. Uh, As humans made in the image of God, we are therefore made for worship. Um, We are uh, uh, a phrase, homo adorans. Uh, We're not homo sapiens fundamentally. We're not just people who know fundamentally. We are worshippers fundamentally. Uh, And significantly, those words cultivate and keep that you get in Genesis 2.15, you know, uh, take care of the... The garden. He places Adam in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. Genesis 2.15. Both of those are <coughs> temple vocabulary. Uh, in Eden, there is a complete overlap between human work and true worship. Uh, John Frame talks about the, the semantic link between cultic and culture as being no coincidence. Worship drives cultural endeavour is the thing he talks about and he notes that that's true of false worship as well as true worship Um, so the heavens and the earth declare the glory of the Lord just because God made them but God's intention has always been to have mediated temple presence filling his creation Uh, God's purpose in creating humanity was for his glory by extending his worship throughout creation. Okay, so 
This is the sort of telos stuff, the purpose stuff, the overarching what God is aiming at stuff. Uh, but to see how that relates to mission, we need to make another step. And that's relating this telos, this goal, to the narrative arc of the Bible. Or else we'd all give it all up and we'd become farmers uh, and that's, we'd, we'd all go now. Uh, so, okay, ring two. So the second one, uh, what colour is ring two? Green. Oh, there we go. Um, green. Uh, we're talking the narrative arc of God's mission. So there's a distinction between telos, between goal and narrative arc. Uh, telos is to the glory of God. That goal should therefore orientate all rightly aimed Christian endeavour, shouldn't it? Just as it orientates God's dealings with all things. But the narrative arc is to do with how we get there. Um, by way of an illustration, that pot of ecclesiastical marmite... Uh, known as the Mission Action Plan. Um, You'll all know that when you do a Mission Action Plan, you have to state your goals, but that's not enough. Uh, You need to articulate how you're going to get there. Uh, And that has to include an account of where we came from, where we are now, where we're hoping to end up. Uh, And that allows the goals to be interpreted into action. That's the bit I'm rubbish at. Uh, anybody else rubbish at that? No? No, okay, good. Um, right, how do we then relate the glory of God as the goal, as telos, to the narrative arc? Well, okay, uh, we've been going ten minutes now. It's about time we talked about supra and infralapsarianism, isn't it? Uh, yay, let's have a bit of that. Uh, so here's a, a digression. Are these just different perspectives on the same thing? Is supralapsarianism talking about the telos, uh, the, the goal? Uh, you, you know, what is it that most fully reveals God's glory? Well, his revelation of himself in Christ and his body, the totus Christus, uh, Christ and his body. Uh, so, so that's the prior goal, whereas infralapsarianism is more concerned with the narrative arc, the how is it that glo- God's glory is revealed in Christ, through his redemptive work, saving sinners. Is that the case? I don't know. There you go. There's a thought. Um, but this, this is just... <laughs> this is why the gospel is... The gospel is a story. It is biblical, theological in character. You know, we're, we're reformed here. This is just good old-fashioned covenant theology, isn't it? You know, within covenant theology, technically, we only start talking about grace when... We're discussing God's action in a fallen creation. That, that doesn't quite square with the way I normally talk about grace when I, when I preach and, and things like that. I normally define grace as God's undeserved generosity. Uh, and, well, creation itself is full of God's undeserved generosity, isn't it? His free, unforced prior action. But still, when we talk about grace, we're, we're speaking of God's unmerited action towards sinners in the midst of his fallen creation. The covenant of grace doesn't begin till Genesis 3. Um, it's a bit like that with mission. God's overall goal of all things to the glory of God, and therefore the orientation of all things towards worship, well, that predates the fall. That goes on into eternity, doesn't it? But whenever we talk about mission as something in which we participate, we're talking about a point in the narrative arc between fall and new creation where we are now. Uh, The mission of the church is to participate in God's redemptive mission in a sinful fallen world. Um, Now, okay, obvious point, why does it matter? Uh, Well, I've, I've written there, we need to think about antithesis when we do mission. You see, it's about making this concept of God's mission applicable to us. 
understanding the narrative thing keeps us from, well, falling into things like process theologies where we just assume it'll all kind of work out all right uh, and undiscerning social engagement where we might try and achieve human flourishing without the gospel and repentance where we might see that as being mission Uh, i'm going to go on and say that god's mission produces social and political change but social and political change without the gospel is not god's mission Uh, and it's not orientated towards true worship, uh, which is what mission is about. Now, if we miss that, that, that kind of, we're ignoring the enormous effect of the fall on our nature and on our cultural activity. You know, if we are homo adorans by nature, if we are worshipping people, the effect of the fall has been to direct our worship and therefore our cultural activity, which is driven by our worship, away from the triune God and towards idols. And therefore, in a fallen creation antithesis that's the recognition that all human activity is orientated either towards the true god or towards idols and those are opposites they are alternatives in tension they are opposing one another well we that's important that we recognize that as part of our christian social engagement obviously because aiming at the glory of god without the gospel that's the folly of babel That's not the fruitfulness of Eden. Okay, narrative arc. There's a story being told in the gospel. Ring three. Bringing this in a little bit. The wide angle and the zoom lenses, or the narrow angle, zoom lens, narrow angle, uh, of the gospel. All right. This ring's a bit of a cheat. It's got a wide and a narrow end. Is it two rings? No, no, it's going to be one. You've got to have five things in a talk. Um, uh, At least a reformed one. Um, So, okay. In their book, uh, What is the Mission of the Church? Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert. uh, You may have come across this book. Helpful book. Um, They make the observation that often, when it comes to the question of what the gospel is, evangelicals talk past each other. Uh, They say, when it comes to evangelical understandings of the gospel there are wide angle and zoom lens people wide angle lens you know the idea big wide sweep zoom lens focuses right in Uh, they say this uh, a good deal of this confusion they say can be untangled we think by making some careful observations about how this conversation plays out about what the gospel is Uh, It seems to us that these two groups are really answering two different, though highly related, questions. To a Zoom lens person, the question, what is the gospel, translates as, what is the message a person must believe in order to be saved? And so he answers by talking about the substitutionary death of Jesus in the place of sinners, and the call to repent and believe. To a wide-angle person, though, the question, what is the gospel, translates instead What is the whole good news of Christianity? And of course he answers by talking not just about forgiveness, but also about all the great blessings that flow from that, including God's purpose to remake the world. See that simple point, isn't it? There's there's an arrow angle, there's a zoom, there's a wide angle, uh, the two are there. Uh, De Jong and Gilbert, they, they take time to expound a load of New Testament passages to make the point that both of those perspectives are complementary in the way that the gospel is presented in scripture uh, rather than being you know alternatives which compete uh, so okay spend a little moment on each 
in the light of what we've already said. This is where we, we'll get to Colossians. Uh, so if you close Colossians, it's useful to have it open, because uh, we'll look at it uh, uh, just again in ju- just a moment. We're talking about the sort of the wide-angle gospel first, right? The wide-angle gospel, that's the description of God's redemptive mission, this big mission that we find in the likes of Colossians 1, uh, that the reconciliation of all things in Christ to the glory of God. So, quoted, you know, verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, here you've got a kind of going over again, a recapitulation of the themes which I highlighted earlier about creation. You've got Christ as the true image of God. Verse 15, haven't you? There he is. You've got the temple presence of God. Verse 19, gathering up the extent of his creation. So that's the, that's the, the end point of the narrative arc of God's redemptive mission is, is the earth being filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Um, it, it's the end point of scripture, isn't it? It's what you, where you end up at the end of Ezekiel. It's where you end up at the end of Revelation. The glorious temple presence of God. Uh, coextensive with the new creation. And the fact it's reconciliation that he's talking about here that highlights the rift, doesn't it, that exists post-fall. It's the centre of it is through peacemaking sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a, well, we know this, don't we? This is the glorious account of all creation in the gospel with Christ as its centre and as the sum of the whole thing and where all of it is orientated towards worship, God dwelling with his people. All of it orientated towards that. Uh, and it's also a, a broad vision of the kingdom of God, isn't it? In that what is summed up in Christ is brought under his rule. Uh, and uh, the, the bit that you've got just before, the kind of link with one thirteen to 14, and the, the kingdom language there, the dominion of darkness. Uh, and, yeah, although it's implicit rather than explicit in this bit of Colossians... Uh, that involves the defeat and the destruction of the enemies of Christ. You know, th- this is the Missio Dei, this big thing that we're talking about. Uh, you know, significantly, when the term Missio Dei is used by patristic people, um, church fathers from a long time ago, uh, Hillary and Augustine, apparently, so says Chris Green, um, uh, when it's used by them, it's, it's thoroughly Christocentric all the way through. Uh, it, it refers to the Father sending the Son to accomplish salvation. That's what, that's what that term is taken from. So, so we're looking at totally Christ-centred account of salvation in the world. It's God's mission. The actor is God in Christ by the power of his Spirit. God does it all to the praise of his glory, like we've just sung a minute ago uh, in the bits when we still had the words. Uh, and the telling of this story is meant to direct our worship, isn't it? Actually, the way that Colossians presents it as a hymn is meant to stir our worship uh, of this great God. So that's the wide-angle gospel. The narrow-angle gospel, the zoom lens, well, what's that? Well, here we're talking about salvation of people in Christ via repentance and faith, aren't we? And Colossians 1, again, gives you that just as much, doesn't it, as the wide-angle perspective. Paul speaks of how 
People are themselves reconciled and brought under the rule of Christ from the dominion of darkness by hearing and believing the good news and persevering. You can see that, you know, look at verse 4 to 6. Included as they heard the gospel. Or verse 13 to 14, how it is that they've been delivered. Or verse 21 to 23, how it is that they need to continue in the gospel, believing the gospel so that they may too share in the fullness of God and his everlasting hope. You know, that, that, is too all, that is just as much all God-given as the other bit. They're given fullness in Christ, aren't they? Do you see that? Now, if you have a look at verse no, chapter 2, if you just look over, the, you know, look over the page, 9 and 10, look how they've been given fullness in Christ. Again, it's, it's God's mission, it's God's doing. And... Um, yeah, and this, this makes kind of explicit in the lives of individuals what is central in the wide-angle gospel. The fact that when people are reconciled to God in Christ, it must be through forgiveness of sins and the defeat of evil powers and authorities, and it is going to involve their personal response to Jesus. Uh, the emphasis on reconciliation to God is important there for our understanding of mission. Because that's what's at the heart of this, isn't it? Reconciliation... To God, you know, reconciliation between people wherever we see it is a blessing. It's a good thing. We might rightly say it's of God, but it's not mission unless it's to do with renewed people being reconciled to God in worship. You see, to speak about God's mission of reconciliation is to place repentance and faith in Christ at its centre. It has to be. It has to be. So, okay, the relationship between the two lenses, the wide angle, the zoom lens, this is where our understanding of our own involvement in mission needs to be grounded. Uh, they're, they're not opposed, nor should they be confused. Here's a few thoughts about that relationship which are relevant to our understanding of and participation in the mission of God. So, okay, you ready for a few thoughts? Deep breath. You all all right? Everyone still awake? Do you want to shake your... Shoulders out at this point. Feel free to do so. Um, here's a few thoughts. Right. The narrow-angle gospel is the proclamation of the wide-angle mission of God. What do I mean by that? Uh, Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, the gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is not primarily a way of life. It is not something we do, but something which has been done for us and something we must respond to. So when we announce the gospel, we proclaim the saving acts of God in Christ, don't we? That's one, one of the helpful features of seeing mission as missio dei, God's mission. Because missio dei is proclaimed by us and not achieved by us. Our role is to announce what God has done. And because this wide-angle picture is so vast, that's not reductionist to do that. Uh, Keller goes on and he says this, he says, because the gospel is endlessly rich, it can handle being the burden of the one main thing of a church, he says. Now that's, that's just a recognition, isn't it, that, that Missio Dei itself is orientated towards the glory of God and it relies entirely upon him. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, next thing, the way the wide-angle mission of God is realised in history is through the narrow-angle gospel. Um, what must I do to be saved? Repent and believe the good news, goes the answer. Repent and be baptised. Uh, the Missio Dei 
is not a wide and expansive thing of which the narrow angle gospel is a part. It's a wide and expansive thing which is focused sharply through the lens of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, I've got a John Frame quote for you. You ready for a bit of John Frame? He makes this point. He's talking here about the connection between the relationship of the, the relationship between, sorry, the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate, that's when uh, that bit from Genesis 2, uh, fill the earth, subdue it, uh, till it and keep it, cultivate it, uh, do stuff with creation. The cultural mandate given to Adam at the start and the Great Commission made through Jesus. And, and he says this, he says, the Great Commission is the republication of the cultural mandate for the semi-eschatological age. That's the time of now, the now and not yet time. Uh, Unlike the original cultural mandate, it presupposes the existence of sin and the accomplishment of redemption. It recognises that if the world is to be filled with worshippers of God, subduing the earth as his vassal kings, they must first be converted to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. So big, big, wide sweep, but very narrowly focused, sharply focused through the gospel of Jesus. Um, One thing just to say, picking up some of the stuff that that Johnny said before, God is sovereign in revealing and concealing in mission, and he is glorified either way, uh, however it pans out from our point of view. Just as we recognise, you know, the sovereignty of God in the accomplishment of his saving acts... So we must acknowledge the application of the mission, in the application of it, that he too is sovereign in that. Uh, And in the apparent success or failure of the mission, he's sovereign in that. I'm struck by the implications of one of the, the kind of big, well, one of the key, I think, Trinitarian missiological texts of the New Testament, which is Luke 10, 21. If you just want to flick to that for just a second... Uh, Luke 10, 21, it comes after the bit where Jesus has just sent out uh, a whole bunch of his disciples uh, to proclaim the kingdom. Uh, and they've, they've brought back in, they've come back in. Luke 10, 21. Uh, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your, for your this was your good pleasure. You know, Jesus is thrilled by this. He's delighted by it, and he says, "This is for the Father's pleasure." When, well, when the wise and learned have these things hidden from them, which are same at the same time revealed to little children, when people believe or reject. When a Christendom rises or falls, the Lord is sovereign and revealing and concealing, and he's glorified either way. So, remember, the mission is towards God's well, worship of God, God's glory. God will be glorified. He will see to it. The extension of this mission is the extension of worship by the reorientation of worshippers. What do I mean by it? Okay, back to Greg Beale in his, in his study, The Temple and the Church's Mission. Remember, he thinks temples expand um, and that that's what God is doing in the world. Um, he connects the, the themes of kind of missionary expansion and worship. Uh, so having made the point from creation uh, and from 
the prophetic expectation that the end time temple of God was going to expand to fill all of God's creation, which he argues at quite some length. Uh, Beale, he, he then goes on to observe how in the Gospels and in Acts, that's fulfilled uh, in Christ himself as the new temple, who through his spirit fills and extends his temple body, which is the church, to the ends of the earth. And the way that the temple extends in Acts is through the spreading of the word and through the church being church, uh, as the sovereign Lord adds to their number sovereignly those who are being saved. Uh, so it's an extension of worship as the church extends. It's, it is the, the temple grows as the church extends is, is what he's talking about. Now, putting mission in those terms, that has some implications, uh, some of which we, we kind of see in, in the way Paul talks about his own ministry uh, in Colossians there, where he talks about filling up the sufferings uh, in himself. Um, so Paul makes the connection again between proclaiming the gospel and priestly sacrifice. Here's, here's an example in Romans 15. Uh, if you want to do a bit of flicking again, Romans 15, an interesting verse. Romans 15, 15 to 16. Um, what does Paul say there? He says this. He's summing up why he's written the letter. He says, I've written to you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus and my service to God. All of its temple vocabulary, isn't it? All of its worship. This, this, this illustrates the goal and the means of mission, I think. You know, his, his concern is for the Gentiles to be for the worship of God by turning to the true God from idols. And therefore, Paul proclaims his gospel, including the, writer of the writing of this letter, for their correction and their discipleship to that end. You know, it's, it's not the obvious point, isn't it? But the, the thing that sometimes gets levelled at uh, conservatives, if you like, is that we're just concerned with making converts. And it, it's very clear, isn't it, that, that actually... Its goal is not just the making of converts, the initiation of converts, but rather a, a people who are to God's praise, like we've just read in Colossians, like we've just sung. Uh, people who are thoroughly transformed by the gospel to the glory of God. Humans who are themselves homo adorans, as I say, worshippers by default, becoming true worshippers by having their worship radically reorientated. Now, elsewhere, Paul uses similar priestly language when he talks of his sufferings that's connected isn't it sacrifice um, of getting the gospel out or in 1 Peter 2 where the church is declared to be the holy and priestly people of God declaring his praise therefore called to holy living in the midst of suffering and hostility it's because the Missio Dei is orientated towards worship that this kind of body of things like evangelism, holiness, suffering and prayer sort of naturally hang together because that is what that's, that's, that's the aim of worship so okay there's some things about that, cultural transformation is therefore an expected consequence of this mission by God's grace uh, 
So if worshippers are all of life disciples, obviously, in public as well as in private, obviously, uh, with regard to the church and to the state, as Romans 12, 1 onwards expresses clearly, you know, the bit where he, Paul talks about uh, this is, you know, by having your minds renewed. Don't conform to the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This is your spiritual act of worship, and he goes on and applies that to uh, the way they behave with the, the state and all sorts of other things. Um, as we've already asserted, uh, worship drives cultural endeavour. It just does. It, it's the thing that drives all of our action, uh, for good or for ill, depending on the direction of our worship. Uh, Dan Strange, he talks about culture being religion externalised. What is culture? It's, it's, it's the the religion of that culture embodied. Um, To be part of God's redeemed people in Christ, then, is to stand as new Adams in Christ at the apex of a new creation, to be called to a kind of renewed stewardship. Now, Now, that doesn't mean Christians are called to a specifically different range of activities to other humans in the world, but it's rather to say that, that actually the activity that Christians carry out in the world is to be redirected, uh, not conforming to the pattern of this world, but rather being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Um, the wide-angle gospel that I've talked about uh, shows that uh, mission has wide-ranging consequences, even in the midst of this semi-eschatological age, as John Frame talks about it, Uh, even in the now, not just in the not yet. Worship cultivates, uh, regardless of the extent to which we think our work persists into the new creation, uh, which I think is one of those things we can say that the jury's still out on, um, regardless of the extent of that, cultural transformation is just part of what we do in the world in the power of the Spirit. It's it's a consequence of the mission we've been given. Because as worshippers, whole-of-life disciples, that is what flows out of us. Uh, So just as I think it's folly, like I've said, to try and pursue cultural transformation without the gospel, it's reductionistic to not expect the gospel to produce change in culture. Um... And this is where I think we kind of drawing all of that discussion to a conclusion. Uh, it's this. The mission of God should result in us having, I think, sharp focus and broad horizons. Sharp focus in the mission that we're doing. Sharp focus in the gospel. Broad horizons in where we think the scope of that should be. What do I, what do I mean by that? Well, here we go. Our last two rings much more quickly. Uh, because these are going to be picked up a bit more by the other boys. Uh, But here we go. Ring four, distinction between the church as church and the church as Christians. Again, a ring with a wide end and a narrow end. Um, There you go. I like those. Uh, The the Dutch reformed polymath, uh, Abraham Kuyper. Uh, You've got to quote him at some point in a missiology talk. Uh, It's a little bit like um, Leslie Newbigin. Uh, He's one of those people where um, Leslie Newbigin, the the double letters in his name... uh, (laughs) are one of those sibboleths uh, of missiologists. Uh, and actually, when I, when I tried to type sibboleth in on my notes, um, Google corrected me to shibboleth. <laughs> isn't that great? <laughs> that, isn't that great? That I, who would have thought that it would be, you know, such a lifesaver, uh, Google? But there you go. Um, 
There you go. Anyway, so Abraham Kuyper, uh, he, he, he famously distinguished between church as institute and church as organism. Uh, that's a distinction that you hear quite a lot. Institute, organism. Uh, you might have heard those phrases before. Um, modified a little bit in recent discussion of uh, mission and public theology by evangelicals, Don Carson renders it as the church as church and the church as Christians. Or, or Dan Strange goes with the church as gathered and the church as going. But it's a distinction you need, and the great usefulness of that distinction is it helps to preserve the sharp focus and the broad horizons of the church's mission within the mission of God. Um, here's a couple of pictures to help us grasp what that means. Uh, one is a field hospital, uh, and the other is a weeble. Um, I'd love to have the pictures up there. Sorry, I haven't got them up there, but there you go. Uh, Dan Strange talks about the church as being... Uh, he, he's, he was studying Kuiper, and he, in relation to that, he says, the church is a field hospital. A field hospital. It's a military thing, isn't it? Uh, an army tent field hospital. Um, and... A field hospital, the whole purpose of it is it's orientated towards getting people out there, back out there, uh, when they've been injured in battle. Uh, as opposed to a spa, if you like, where it's just getting people in and making them feel comfortable where they are. Um, so, uh, their little quote, which I've got there uh, somewhere on your notes, uh, he, this is a charge he gives to his people when he's teaching them public theology. He says this, On behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians are engaged in a battle with the world. The gathered church is the heavenly, anticipatory, eschatological army tent of the Lord. And you pastors in training are going to be field medics, strengthening the troops, treating their wounds after every battle, feeding them with God's word and sending them back out to take every thought captive for Christ. If you can imagine me kind of saying that with clenched teeth, like people from Essex do, then that's kind of how Dan would say it. Um, so army tent, getting people back out there. But what happens in the army tent is, is not the out there, is it? In a sense. The, what happens in the army tent is the getting people ready for going back out there. Uh, or the weeble. Well, weebles wobble, but they don't fall down, don't they? You know that. Uh, you ever seen a weeble? You know, they wobble, don't they? But they don't fall down. Uh, it's, it's one of those things we all know. Um, uh, an illustration used by James K.A. Smith. Here's his book. This is, this is another new book. I, I like waving these around because these are just new this has only been out for a little bit. Um, oh, um, get a load of that. Yeah, no, I was, um, I was put onto that, told, told about it. I didn't know it myself. Anyway, um, he is concerned. His thought is, James, James Smith is a, he's writing as an American um, reformed guy, and he's concerned about recent U.S. kind of evangelical involvement in the public sphere. And, and he says that, that he thinks that's taken place without being sufficiently aware, he says, of the strength of the cultural currents already swirling around in that sphere. He thinks evangelicals have gone in there to engage politically and have just ended up kind of getting assimilated, uh, gone in to transform, he says, but have ended up being assimilated by one or another political agenda and following along with it. Um, uh, because we've not been aware enough of either, he says, um, the false worship and the false gospels that are out there or their associated liturgies. Uh, and Jeffrey will talk about this a little bit, uh, I think, in a, in a day or so's time. You see, he sees the gathering of the church, and particularly in its liturgies as an embodiment of the gospel, not just what we say, but the way we 
work that through together as creating a strong center of gravity for believers so that when we lean out into the world in mission we don't topple Uh, and you need to have this really strong center of gravity otherwise when you lean out there you topple over Uh, and he says that is where the church being church uh, in our liturgies because that's his beef uh, but in our teaching of the word and in the sacraments and what the Lord has given us in, in our fellowship together in our church discipline uh, Kuiper would say that's why that is really important for us so that when we're leaning out doing mission we're not just swallowed up by cultural currents hence the weeble both of those points are making the point that for the church to be better orientated towards mission it needs to be more not less churchy as it were um, Smith puts it like this. He says, okay, this is, him, this is how he talks, so you just have to bear with me for a minute. To frame this liturgically, we should note that because gathered worship ends with sending, which it does, doesn't it? Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Uh, Christian worship is less the rights of an enclave and more the training ground for a sent people whose missio will take them to the contested space of markets and elections, corporations and council halls, the enacted Christian narrative of Christian worship as a rehearsal of both our creation and our recreation culminates in the go of both Genesis 1 and Matthew 28. Thus the church is less a contrast society we retreat into than a recentering community of practice that we are sent from. Um, All of that is just saying that social discernment, being equipped for dealing with the false gospels out there and the false worship out there, and a strong scriptural identity as gathered church, where our gathered worship is itself formative, are really important. Uh, Cue Jason, cue Jeffrey uh, tomorrow. Um, But without the category of church as church, mission becomes too broad and too narrow at the same time. So... Chris Wright, uh, who's a wonderful missiologist in lots of ways who you'll have heard, when he grounds his biblical theology of the mission of God uh, at the end of his work, he sort of groups it into three areas. He says, this is the task of the church, three areas of focus for the church's mission, cultivating the church, engaging society, and creation care. And he he groups those as, as our applications for how we do mission. Uh, Jonathan Lehman, who I've already mentioned, uh, he engages with Chris Wright in that book, Four Views of the Mission of the Church, and he critiques that by saying this. He says that because Chris Wright presents those as tasks given to the church without distinguishing between the role of the church as church and the vocations of Christians in the world, those who we are sending out of our mission tents, of our army tents, Um, Because he does that, he he ends up with the mission of the church being simultaneously too broad and too narrow. If you like, the focus becomes blurred and the horizons shrink when you put too too many eggs into the basket of church as church. Um, Final ring, very briefly then, the, the role of the pastor. I guess we'll think about this a little bit more in our seminar. What is the pastor to do then? What is our role within that big mission that God is doing? Um, Well, 
We're there for binding up the wounds, feeding with the word, with the supper, equipping and sending the people of God back out into the mission field. Uh, You know, it's a sharply focused shepherding, but it's with broad horizons. Um, It's things like word, prayer and sacrament, but it's with the the widest horizons in view. Uh, We need to not lose our focus or narrow our horizons that we're aiming at. Uh, Dan Strange again says to his people, he says, "I, I, I want you as trainee pastors to be people of word, prayer and sacraments so that there can be cultural renewal as a result of what your people in your churches say and do as they take the gospel out into the world uh, and live lives of worship. He says, I want that to happen. But you need to be really clear in what you're doing if that is going to happen. You know, beware of just things like projects and programmes uh, where, um, which are you know, clearly not useless, they can be very helpful things, but, but can have a, a role, an effect, if you like, of blurring your focus and narrowing your people's horizons by pouring them and your energy into the, this project rather than the church being church so that the people of God disciples, the worshippers might be uh, ambassadors in the world Five Rings, uh, a fair bit there Um, I don't know how long I've gone on I've gone on ages Um, but let's let's call it to close there Um, can we just pray for a moment and then we'll we'll do some thinking in a minute in our seminar later on but let's, let's just pray for a minute Father, we thank you that you've delivered us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son you love. Thank you that you've done that for the sake of your own glory. Thank you that you've taken us from being false worshippers, being orientated towards hell, and you've directed us to become your people living with you and for you. Thank you that by your spirit we are indwelt. Uh, We've become part of your temple presence in the world. We share those blessings now. Thank you, Lord, for where that, uh, that story ends. Thank you for the assurance that we have of what is still to come. Thank you for the sure and certain hope of the time when sin and death is no more. Uh, Thank you that on that day, the joy will be to be with you face to face. So Lord, we pray that now, as we think about uh, what it is we are here to do now, and our role within this great saving work that you've given us, Lord, please keep our 
eyes fixed on you. Keep our horizons broad in as much as we trust your great sovereignty over all things and in as much as we see uh, the expansive salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now please keep our focus sharp. Please help us not to shift away from the gospel. Help us not to be diverted from word and prayer within our own churches. Uh, Help us, Lord, we pray, to be those who equip your people uh, to be servants of God uh, in all of life. We pray this for the sake of your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dave, so much. I think um, it is right we keep our uh, attitude of prayer and praise by singing briefly, although we will have the opportunity to dig more deeply into that.